Remain standing for our sermon scripture reading out of 1 Chronicles chapter 29, verses 10 through 19. Therefore David blessed the Lord in the presence of all the assembly. And David said, Blessed are you, O Lord, the God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. For all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. And now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. But who am I, and what is my people, that we should be able thus to offer willingly? For all things come from you, and of your own have we given you. For we are strangers before you and sojourners, as all our fathers were. Our days on the earth are like a shadow, and there is no abiding. O Lord, our God, all this abundance that we have provided for building you a house for your holy name comes from your hand and is all your own. I know, my God, that you test the heart and have pleasure in uprightness. In the uprightness of my heart, I have freely offered all these things, and now I have seen your people who are present here offering freely and joyously to you. O Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, our fathers, keep forever such purposes and thoughts in the hearts of your people and direct their hearts toward you. Grant to Solomon, my son, a whole heart that he may keep your commandments, your testimonies, and your statutes, performing all, and that he may build the palace for which I have made provision. You may be seated. Father God, may your spirit open our hearts and our minds to what it is you want to speak to us from your word. Help me to speak clearly. Pray that your word will go forth with power and conviction. May you use it to transform us into your son, Jesus. For it is in his name that we pray. Amen. While I was thinking this week, what are... This is a thought experiment. What are three particularly stressful parts of living in 21st century America? There's many stressful things, but I came up with three that I think are unique to 21st century America. The first is when you lose cell phone reception, especially when you're driving somewhere. Everyone's, that's like, you know, as a millennial young person, it's my nightmare to be somewhere in rural Kentucky, lose reception, and it's like, I don't have a map on me. What do you do? Um, I, I, I don't know. I'm just, I make sure it never happens. I don't know what I do in that situation. Uh, another uh, really uh, stressful part of 21st century life is filling out taxes. Every April 15th, um, especially probably April 14th until midnight, trying to figure out how do I fill out my taxes. And uh, if you're anything like me, it's not like I own three different companies and filing internationally. It's like I, it's just me and my house. Yet we have the most complex tax code in the, uh, in the world, it seems. And then lastly, stressful, is looking for car keys. Can't tell you how many hours I've spent in my life looking for my car keys. And especially when you're late for something, right? Like when you're late for work, if you're late for play date, if you're late for church, 
um, late for whatever, there's nothing more stressful than not knowing where your keys are, right? In that moment, the most important thing for you is finding your keys. There may be other things you need to do, like you need to get your lunch out to your car if you're going to work, you need to get your kids in the car, but when you're looking for your car keys, like, none of that matters unless you find your keys. Unless you find your keys, like, your kids ain't going nowhere, becomes the first of primary importance. Second, you start to use all your mental energies, especially when you're late. So if you're not late and you're just looking for your keys, maybe you're on the phone, maybe you're texting, you're doing other things. But once you're late and you're looking at the clock and you realize, okay, I'm five minutes late. Now I'm 10 minutes late. Now I'm 15 minutes late. And all of a sudden, all your mental energies are focused on finding those keys. You're doing one thing. And then lastly, you look until you find because you can't function without a car. Most of us use cars to go to work. We use cars to go to church, to go grocery shopping. Like, you will look for your keys until you find them. That's just the way it's going to be. Now, what's interesting, what's significant, is that the Bible, one of the ways that the Bible describes how we relate to God is it calls us to seek him, like we seek for our car keys. And seeking is a dominating experience, and it's a very provocative and very illuminating way to describe how we should relate to God. And chapters 20 and 29 of First Chronicles is what we're looking at this morning. As David is growing old and he's giving his final charge to Israel, this is it, says Israel. Seek God. Seek after him. And this gets us to our three points for this morning. As David tells him to seek the Lord first, seek the Lord wholly, and seek the Lord always. Now, it's been a couple weeks since we've been in First Chronicles, so I'm going to just quickly recap. Again, First and Second Chronicles is written to the Jewish nation as they're coming back from exile. They'd spent anywhere from 70 to 100 years in forced exile in a foreign land. Finally, they're given freedom to go home. But when they get home, it does not look like what they remembered it used to look like. They're much smaller than they used to be. There's other nations that have taken up residence the capital of Jerusalem is a ghost town. And so as they're coming back, whoever the chronicler is, it doesn't tell us, but he's retelling the story of Israel to try to communicate to these returning exiles, this is who you are. This is who God is. To instruct them as they rebuild their nation. And we've seen that building the temple is going to be a really important thing for Israel. There's many chapters dedicated to the building of the temple, and it's telling Israel, you are fundamentally a worshiping people. It's one of your most uh, essential identities. We also find that the role of the king is prominent. In some ways, First and Second Chronicles is just the chronicles of the kings in a sense. I mean, they don't focus on other characters like you get in First and Second Kings. The emphasis is all on the king of the time, both for good and for evil, as we'll see. And then lastly, if you remember from three weeks ago in chapter 22, as, as David sins against God and God brings judgment... And then God stays his hand of judgment in response to David's pleas for forgiveness. David says, this is where the temple is going to be built, at the place of God's mercy. Now we're picking up in chapter 28, so we got chapter 23 to 27. I'm going to give a quick overview so that we know where we are when we pick up in chapter 28. But in chapter 23, after, after David has decided where the temple is going to be built, we get to this, this story in chapter 23, verse 1 and 2. Now when David was old and full of days, he made Solomon his son king over Israel. 
David assembled all the leaders of Israel and the priests and the Levites. And actually, if you have a Bible open, which is probably the best way to follow along, just flip over to 23. And so that's how it's introduced. David's getting old, so he calls this giant assembly, a, kind of like a church service, you could think. And then we get chapter 23, David organizes the Levites. Chapter 24, he organizes the priests. Chapter 25, he organizes the musicians. Then 26, the gatekeepers, other officials. We get the military divisions, the leaders of the tribes. So basically 23 to 27 is just outlining who are the people who are here in this assembly. Everybody, That's basically the answer. It's everybody. This is a huge assembly that David is calling in order to give his final charge to the people in order to transition his throne to his son Solomon. And then in 28, it says, David assembled at Jerusalem all the officials of Israel, almost repeating chapter 23, verse 1 and 2, telling us, look, we're continuing that story that we began in 23. We had all this information of all, these, all the people that are present. Now we're going back to, okay, David is old, and he calls an assembly. And this brings us to our, to our first point, where David charges Israel to seek the Lord first. Now I want to set the stage here, because David is old, and, that's, and we can recognize that that's sad because David was a good king, but we don't quite realize how much of a, a time of instability and, and, and really fear this would have been for the nation of Israel. When our presidents hit their last term or they get voted out of office, we have this thing called a constitution, and it tells us how the transfer of power will happen and how it will happen peacefully. In a monarchy, the greatest authority was not a constitution. It was the king. And so the king would rule based on his own ability to maintain power. Well, what do you do when that king dies? Well, if, if there's a clear heir, then it's a little bit easier of a transition. But if there's not a clear heir, then it kind of turns into a civil war as the various heirs battle it out. And by the way, that's what happens when Solomon dies. When Solomon dies, there's a civil war. And the nation splits and it never reunites. And so when the king is coming to the end of his life, you're entering a time of deep instability in the nation that could turn into bloodshed. And so as the people are, are watching David get old and are seeing him say goodbye, there's fear for them because they're like, we don't know what's going to come next. This could upend our entire nation. This could lead to war in the streets. But beyond just the political instability, there's also the fear of what's the next king going to be like. David was a king who was imperfect in many ways, and that's an understatement, but yet he did love the Lord and he tried to lead the people towards the Lord. Whereas Saul, if you remember, was the opposite. And so when David becomes king and he's, he wants to bring the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem to restore worship to the center of the, of the nation of Israel, they say, let us bring again the Ark of our Covenant. This is First Chronicles 13. For we did not seek it in the days of Saul. In the days of Saul, Saul did not lead the people to seek God. And so not only are you worried about political instability, you're like, is this new king? Is he going to be like David? Or is he going to be like Saul? just a lot of instability here. And so David actually begins with an encouragement to the people of Israel. Look at verses 2 to 7 in chapter 28. Then King David rose to his feet, and he said, Hear me, my brothers and my people. I had it in my heart to build a house of rest for the ark of the covenant of the Lord and for the footstool of our God. And I made preparations for building. But God said to me, You may not build a house for my name, for you are a man of war and have shed blood. Yet the Lord God of Israel chose me from all my father's house to be king over Israel forever. For he chose Judah as leader, and in the house of Judah, my father's house, and among my father's sons, he took pleasure in me to make me king 
over all Israel. And all my sons, for the Lord has given me many, he has chosen Solomon, my son, to sit on the throne of the kingdom of the Lord over Israel. He said to me, it is Solomon, your son, who shall build my house and my courts, for I have chosen him to be my son, and I will be his father. And I will establish his kingdom forever if he continues strong in keeping my commandments and my rules as he is today. David was incredibly successful as a king. He extended the, the boundaries of Israel. He, he beat the Philistines, the you know, arch enemies of Israel. He subdued them. He was successful spiritually. He restored correct worship to the ark. He made preparations for the temple. I mean, he was, just, he was a successful king. But what David is saying, look, as David is dying, it wasn't, it wasn't me. David was not the crucial ingredient in this. Who was? Yet the Lord God of Israel chose me. Chose Judah as a leader. Of all my father's sons, he took pleasure in me. Saying, look, yeah, David's saying, I I am dying. But I was never the crucial ingredient to begin with. It was a God who chose me out of all the others, who, who called me from the pastures as a shepherd, the youngest of seven, and he made me into king. It was God's sovereign power that mattered. Now, this would have been encouraging to Israel as they're facing potentially a really destabilizing time in the kingdom. But again, also think of the exiles who are coming back to a land, a a fraction of who they used to be. The same God who took David from the pasture and made him a king is still the sovereign Lord who's still at work and he's still in control. And deeply encouraging to him as well. So David begins with encouragement, speaking to people who are in fear, telling them, look, it, I, I was never the crucial ingredient here. And then he gives them a charge in verse 8. Now therefore, in the sight of all Israel, the assembly of the Lord, and in the hearing of our God, observe and seek out all his commandments of the Lord your God, that you may possess this good land and leave it for an inheritance to your children after you forever. In the midst of this transition, you've got to think of all the logistics of a, of a new king coming in. Where is he going to live? He's going to bring a new administration. I, mean, you, I lived in D.C. during a, a, a presidential administration turnover, and like, it's, it's, it's mayhem. I mean, you've got all new people coming in, people leaving, um, a whole bunch of people just lost their job if they were in the old administration. As you're looking at the transition, what is the most important thing? Is it all the logistics? Is it protecting you from other nations, right? Other nations would oftentimes take advantage of the instability in a transition and attack before the new king could establish themselves. Is it protecting yourself from them? No, the most fundamental thing for you, Israel, as you begin this transition is seek the Lord. Seek his commandments. Seek him. That's the most important thing. Seek the Lord first. For at the end of the day, David is not the one who, who, who would keep Israel safe. He's not the one who would guarantee that they may possess the good land and leave it as an inheritance. It'd be God himself. So seek him first. That's the most important thing. And again, we've got to keep coming back to the returning exiles because they're the ones this book was written to. And you can imagine the returning exiles as they're coming back, and again, they're a fraction of who they used to be, and they're incredibly discouraged, and they're facing enemies that are far larger than them, and they probably are thinking, if, if we could have David, we'd be good. 
I mean, for the exiles, they're looking back on this as history. And so they know that kind of David and Solomon, they were the apex, the, 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 the pinnacle of the Israelite kingdom, both militarily, spiritually, and after there just goes downhill. And so they look at David like, if we could have David here to lead us as we re-enter the land, we'd be good. When I was in college, I, I led wilderness trips for summer at a camp in Wisconsin. And uh, there had been a longtime camp director at that camp. His name is Ken Kalish. And if you're familiar with um, experiential outdoor education, which is this whole kind of movement of education, like ropes course, courses were created by experiential outdoor education groups. It's this idea that there's things you can learn when you push yourself beyond where you think you can go, right? So we're going to put you in a ropes course where you're naturally terrified because we're not, we're not made to be 50 feet in the air. And you're not going to think you can do it, but then you're going to do it, and you're going to learn stuff about yourself that you can't learn in a book. Hence the reason it's experiential learning, outdoor education. So Ken Kalish was a pioneer in this. Um, if you guys have heard of Outward Bound, which maybe you haven't, but they were like a premier organization who would lead wilderness trips. They used to use Ken Kalish's master's thesis in their staff training for decades. So he was a legend, and he, he, he operated this camp for probably 40 years. He retired the year I came, so I never actually got to work for him. But he retired, and the guy they hired to replace him, like, they, they, they botched the transition. They didn't get him to right before camp started, and so he didn't, he didn't know Wisconsin. He was from Colorado. He didn't have time to prepare, and he, really did, he wasn't prepared, and so he couldn't prepare us as the wilderness guides either. And so it was kind of a baptism by fire as we went out leading high school students in the wilderness of uh, Upper Peninsula, Michigan, <laughs> Um, and if you've ever been to Upper Peninsula, Michigan, it's like a lot of swamps. It's not a place you really want to backpack in. So I'm leading my first trip um, with high school students, and we had these maps that are made by the United States Geological Society, and they were made in like the 50s. And so we get there, and there's like supposed to be a trail here, but guess what? In the 60 years since this map was made, that trail doesn't exist anymore. And so we're like lost from the moment we start. And, uh, and, and, and landmarks have shifted, and there are like now fences where there used to be open land. Like we one time came to a street we needed to cross, and someone had built a cow farm on the other side, and it was completely fenced in by barbed wire. And so we're like, well, we got to cut across this somehow. I don't know how we're going to do this. And so we're about three days in, and I'm trying to find this lake. And in my mind, I'm picturing, you know, we're all bedraggled. My co-counselor is literally having a life crisis, so I am all alone trying to lead this group. And I'm just picturing coming to this like beautiful northern lake that's surrounded by fir trees and like we'll be able to regroup and kind of, you know, salvage this trip. And so we're getting to where the lake should be and it's not there. And then all of a sudden as we're hiking along, we're like ankle deep in water and we're in the middle of a swamp. And I'm like, what is going on? And I realized again in the 60 years since that map was made, this lake has turned into a swamp. And so we end up, and by this point it's late, it's like, you know, five o'clock, we got to stop and make camp. So we set up camp in a swamp, literally. We're setting up our tents in puddles, and it begins to downpour, just raining cats and dogs. And so we, we get into our tents, and I remember having this distinct longing. If Ken Kalish were here, that legendary camp director, the man who had spent 40 years in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, one, he would have known that this lake doesn't exist. He would have known that these trails don't exist, and he would know what to do. Because I'm like, I've never been that stressed before in my life. I have three kids, right? Like, I, I'm an adult now. I've never been as stressed as I was at night. Because I'm thinking, are there other water sources that don't exist? Like, am I going to lead us to a place where we won't have water? Like, 
I, I was just, I was absolutely stressed out of my mind. And I just, if Ken Kalish were here, he would know what to do. That's probably what the exiles are thinking. If David were here, he would know what to do. Because we've seen how successful he was. And David is saying, no, 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 no. The important thing is not me. The important thing is the Lord. Seek him. Don't trust in a person. And this is why Psalm 146, verses 3 to 5 says, Put not your trust in princes, in the son of man, in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. That was true with David. As great of a king as he was, he died. Don't put your trust in him. But rather, blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God. David is saying, Israel, the power was always God, and God remains. He is still God. And so trust in him. Seek him. Because at the end of the day, seeking and trusting are intimately related. And this is a litmus test for us in terms of finding out, are we trusting in people or are we trusting in God? In times of difficulty, we will seek what we trust. When life is hard, when we're in the midst of suffering, we're in the midst of uncertainty, we will seek what we trust. So if you're in the midst of financial difficulties, maybe you trust your job to provide for you, and so you look for more work opportunities. Maybe you trust your family to provide for you, so you seek your family. How often, though, do we find ourselves in a position where something happens and we're stressing out about it, and we spend like three days, just the internal dialogue, what am I going to do? I don't know. I'm going to do this. I don't know. And then all of a sudden we think, you know what? I should probably pray about this. Well, in that moment, I'm seeking what I trust. Those can be opportunities in the midst of difficulty when you realize, you know what? I don't, I'm not trusting God. Those can be opportunities for repentance and growth in faith and trust. So David gives his first charge to Israel as he's preparing to die. Israel, seek the Lord first. The second charge is Israel, seek the Lord holy. This is verses uh, 9 and 10, and here we move from a charge just to all of Israel. Now David is speaking predominantly to, to Solomon. He says this, And you, Solomon my son, know the God of your father and serve him with a whole heart and with a willing mind. For the Lord searches all hearts and understands every plan and thought. If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will cast you off forever. Be careful now, for the Lord has chosen you to build a house for the sanctuary. Be strong and do it. To give a kind of modern paraphrase, he's saying, Solomon, don't just go through the the motions. Verse 9. Know God. Serve him with a whole heart, with a willing mind. Solomon, you're going to build the temple. Don't just go through the motions. Don't just come to church going through the motions. Don't just sing songs, going through the motions. Don't just read your Bible, going through the motions. Seek God wholly, with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your strength. This is kind of a rephrasing of the great commandment, Deuteronomy 6, 5, where Moses, speaking to the people of Israel, says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. That's That's what David is saying to Israel, saying, Israel, Seek God first, but seek him with your whole heart, with with all your might, with all your strength, with all your willpower and capacity and resources. Seek him with everything. Don't make it a lip service. Because what God wants most, right, is not our lip service. He doesn't want our 
external behavior. He wants our hearts. And what's interesting is the fact that the greatest commandment in the Bible, according to Jesus, is to love God, is actually incredibly disruptive, at least for how we in the world tend to think about things. And this is why Jesus will say in his kingdom, the last shall be first and the first shall be last. Because what matters is in the kingdom of God is loving him with all our being, not our skills, our gifts, our resources, our money, our power. What matters is do we love him with everything? And that's why in Mark 12, when Jesus is watching the giving at the temple and people are coming and they're giving their money and some people give a lot and you hear it jingle and then this old widow comes along and she gives like, Two copper coins, a couple cents. And Jesus is like, disciples, come here now. That woman gave more than everyone else combined. Why? Because she gave everything she had. She loved God with all. It's incredibly disruptive. I really am convinced we're going we're gonna to get to heaven one day. Get a king, get a, the kingdom will come. And those we think are a big deal will be not a big deal. And the people that we think are pretty insignificant will be the great ones because they loved God with all their heart. And you may think, I don't have much to offer God. I don't, have much, I don't have much money. I don't have many skills to speak of. I don't have time or effort or resources. I'm discouraged, whatever. To come to God is free. It doesn't, doesn't take money. It doesn't require education. It doesn't require resources. It's free, but it will cost you everything. Because Christ is the one who said, unless you die... To yourself, you cannot follow me. As you take up your cross, you cannot follow me. What matters most is those who love the Lord with all their heart, with all their soul, with all their mind, all their strength. Now, David gives two reasons in his text why they should seek God wholly, with all their heart. First, in verse 9, is because God sees the heart. It says, for the Lord searches all hearts and understands every plan and thought. Like Solomon, you can build this temple and make it look real good and people will be really impressed by your piety, but God will know whether it's really coming from your heart, whether it's an overflow of your, of your seeking God with everything. God will know. We may be able to fool, fool people based on our external behavior, but God searches the heart and sees and understands. And what's implicit in this is that one day we will also give an account to him who searches the hearts and knows these things. So seek him with all your heart. We may fool people, but we can't fool God. Solomon, search him with, seek God with all your heart. But the second reason he tells Solomon to seek God with his whole heart is because of the promise. Look at this. The Lord searches all hearts. He understands every plan and thought. And if you seek him, he will be found by you. That's a promise. Solomon, if you seek God with all your heart, you're going to find him. I think a lot of times we don't seek for God with our whole heart because we're not convinced we're going to find him. Last year, I lost my phone for like a week. Which again, that could have been my fourth most stressful you know, experience growing up in the 21st century. I just couldn't find it anywhere. And the worst part is I didn't know where I'd left it. I am really absent-minded. I lose everything. Anything that's mobile, I've lost it in my life, including my kids. Um, but I lose my phone, I, and I didn't know if I'd left it at church. I didn't know I'd left it at home. I didn't know if I'd left it in like a grocery store. So I, I could go to church and rip my office apart, but it may not be there. There's no guarantee if I search, I'm going to find it. And then Chandler actually reminded me that um, phones had these find my phone things where you can like, I have a 
Google Pixel. I can log into my Google account, and it'll tell me where my phone was last before my battery died, which is super creepy, but also really helpful in this instance. And so I log into my account, and I say, okay, my phone died at my home. That means it is somewhere in my house. And so I went home, and I literally tore my house apart until I found it. And I finally found it. It was my, uh, my kid's room used to be upstairs, and we had a mini split, and I had put it on top of the mini split when I was putting him to bed one night, and, and that's where I found it. But because I knew where it was, I said, okay, I'm going to search for it until I find it, because I know I will find it in this house. And that's the promise here. If you search for God with all your heart, you will find him. I'm curious, do you believe this? If you search for God with everything, you will find unimaginable joy. You will find the source of all that is true and good and beautiful if you seek him with all your heart. I still remember high school, going to high school retreats, church retreats, having deeply emotional spiritual experiences where the 16-year-olds are saying, I, I, God, all I want is you. You can take everything. All I want is you. Which a cynic would say, well, when you're 16, it doesn't really mean much, right? Because your life possessions are about $50. So yes, take it all, God. All I want is you. And then we grow into adults and we get adult responsibilities. And then we have kids, we have school, we have jobs. And life gets complicated. And that can lead us to begin to settle. So no longer are we searching for God, seeking God with all our heart, but we're seeking God with part of our heart. And as a result, we get part of God. The promise to Solomon, the promise to every believer is that if you seek God with all your heart, you will find him. And so if it's true that you will find God if you seek him with all your heart, what do you need to do differently this week? Like, what do you need to reschedule? What do you need to reprioritize? If it's true, the God of the universe who made you for himself, for whom your heart is restless until you rest in him, he can be found if you search for him. That's true. How do you need to restructure this week? So David gives his second charge. First he says, Israel, seek God first. And Israel, seek him wholly. The last, third, says, Israel, seek the Lord always. So after giving these first two charges, we move to chapter 29, and here David kind of asks Israel to put some skin in the game. He's giving them charge, seek God first, seek him wholly, but now I'm going to actually ask you to respond in obedience. And he does that by asking them to give to the, give to the building of the temple. In 29 verses 1 to 2, he says, And David the king said to all the assembly, Solomon, my son, whom alone God has chosen, he is young and inexperienced, and the work is great. For the palace will not be for a man, but it will be for the Lord God. So I have provided for the house of my God so far as I was able, the gold for the things of gold, the silver for the things of silver, the bronze for things of bronze, the iron for the things of iron. He goes on, lists other things he's given. In verse 5, Who then will offer willingly, consecrating himself today to the Lord? He says, look, my son Solomon is, is, is young. He's never done this before. I mean, I kind of handled the steps, and that was very stressful. Because I was like, if this doesn't work out, we're all going to know it's my fault. Those are just steps. Solomon is building the temple. He's designing it. He's orchestrating it. I mean, he's not designing it. You know, he's getting the architect. I mean, he's handling it all. And David's saying, look, this is beyond Solomon. 
And this is not just going to be a house. This is going to be the place where God will meet with his people. It has to be great. So he's saying, Israel, I've, I've given you a charge to seek God with everything you have, so I'm going to call you to obedience. Do it out of your pocketbook, out of your wallet. And we've got to imagine, I mean, this, this assembly, this is all Israel together. This is King David giving his final charge. This is the kind of assembly, as he's speaking, where he would have heard a, heard a pin drop, right? And there's an energy in the room, and people's hearts are being stirred. And so David gives this call to obedience. And what happens in verse 6? Then the leaders of fathers' houses made their freewill offerings, as did also the leaders of the tribes and the commanders of thousands and hundreds and officers, and they gave for the service of the house of God 5,000 talents and 10,000 derricks of gold and 10,000 talents of silver and 18,000 talents of bronze and 100,000 talents of iron. And verse 9, then the people rejoiced because they had given willingly, for with a whole heart they had offered freely to the Lord. And David the king also rejoiced greatly. This is basically a revival. At the very least, a spiritual renewal, an awakening. As, as David is giving this charge to the people of God and they respond to a call to obedience, and what we don't see, because I didn't read what David gave, is, is the people give more than David. Now this is before the time of the middle class. You were either the king or you were poor. And David had been saving up for a while for this. With his various military exploits, he would like take what he got from those and then he would put it aside for the temple. And so David gives this and then he says, but we need more. And the people respond by giving more than he gave. The peasant village workers giving all they have. And they're not doing it out of guilt. Like, oh, it's just, just rejoicing because they love God and they want his temple to be great. It's just like free response. This is a revival. This is a spiritual mountaintop experience, a spiritual high, as we, like we used to say when I was growing up. And so in response, David prays this prayer, which is what Nolan read this morning. But the central part of the prayer is what we get to at the end of it, which is what I want to focus on. And in here, we get David's final charge to Israel, verses 18 to 19. O Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, our fathers, keep forever such purposes and thoughts in the hearts of your people and direct their hearts toward you. Grant to Solomon, my son, a whole heart that he may keep your commandments, your testimonies, and your statutes, performing all that he may build the palace for which I have made provision. It says, Israel, seek God always, not just on these spiritual mountaintop experiences, but in the valleys in the boring times. Keep these purposes forever in the hearts of God's people. And this is, brings us to a truth about Christian discipleship, which is that spiritual mountaintop experiences are good, but they're not sufficient. They're good, but they're not enough. I think there's kind of two camps in Christian circles, how we deal with kind of the spiritual highs, the spiritual mountaintops, one kind of views them as the point of discipleship. It's like, this is, this is what it's all about. And so we're going to run from kind of spiritual high to spiritual high. We're going to, you know, st structure our lives around very emotional, very emotive experiences to try to achieve that spiritual high again. That's one camp. The other camp is the other extreme, where they'd say, no, no, like, there's no good that comes out of these. It's just base emotionalism, 
There's no eternal fruit. Now, in my life, I've had some pretty emotional, spiritual experiences that have formed me in deep ways and left long-term fruit. So I don't think that either of them are true. They're good, but they're not enough. They're not enough to seek God when we're on the spiritual mountaintops, but rather God wants us to seek him in the valleys, seek him in the mundane parts of life, in the boring parts of life. And this was actually something of a rediscovery for the Protestant reformers, to give a little bit of church history. But in the medieval church, the medieval Roman Catholic church, there would become a division between the priests and the monks and those who searched God, sought God with all their hearts, who had what we call sacred vocations, and then everyone else who had what was called profane vocations. So your farmers, your educators, your merchants, people who could not, you know, uh, fast and pray all day because they had to work jobs. And so you had the kind of spiritual class of people who would seek God with all their heart in these very spiritual practices, and then the rest of the church, you know, kind of had to do their profane stuff. And the, and the kind of monks and the priests would almost make up. And the reformers came along and said, no, no, no. In all that you do, glorify God. Farmer, when you're plowing your field, sing praises to the God of the heavens and do it to his glory. Merchants, when you buy and sell in the marketplace, do it to God's glory with all integrity, with generosity. Educators, educate to the glory of God. God wants glory in all parts of your lives. Seek him always. That's what David is saying. In all parts of your life. And so here the great King David, coming to the end of his life, lays out all his heart for the people of Israel. And all comes down to this. Israel, the most important thing for you, seek the Lord. Seek him first. Seek him wholly. Seek him always. Now what's interesting is as we go through Second Chronicles, what we'll see is Israel was not able to do that. That's basically all of Second Chronicles. It kind of climaxes with David and kind of plateaus with Solomon, and then it's just a steady decline in terms of the spiritual vitality and faithfulness of the people of Israel. There are, there are periods of renewal, but on the whole, all of Second Chronicles is detailing Israel not doing this, not seeking God first, not seeking Him holy, not seeking Him always. And what's clear is that Israel needs another king like David. They need another one who's going to lead God's people to seek him. But not just another, and, and by the way, that's why this series is called Awaiting the King. That's the sub-theme throughout the whole book. They need another David. And that'll set us up well for when we come back to the Gospel of Luke in September, because Jesus was that David. And he was the one who fulfilled all the, all the things that Israel needed and were not able to do. Jesus is the fulfillment of that. That's the eternal king of God. But second, what's clear is that Israel doesn't just need a new leader, they need new hearts. There's something corrupt and, 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 and broken within the hearts of people so that they cannot seek God first and holy and always in any kind of like consistent, sustained way. There's something broken within the heart of humanity. And this is why Christianity is unique. Because Christianity has the highest standards of anyone. Again, Jesus said, unless you hate your mother and father, you cannot follow me. Unless you take up your cross, you cannot follow me. Am I, am I having some trouble here? 
going to turn this off.